Section 19 of Mimic Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The Unknown Tragedian by Anna Cora Mawat Ritchie. Chapter 3. Ingenious and reckless by nature, Lord Oranmore made no concealment of his feelings and intentions. That evening he gave Edmonton an animated account of his second interview with Elma. They were sitting in a theater at the time. The play represented was Sheridan Knowles' tragedy of the wife. Elma was to make her first appearance since the death of her mother. Edmonton's attention seemed riveted upon the performance. But when Lord Oranmore repeated Elma's declaration that her hand was promised, his friend gave a violent start. Amazement, what else could it be, lent to the eyes which he fixed upon the speaker a strange, lurid glare. The words, not possible, issued involuntarily from his ashy lips. She told me herself, said Lord Oranmore, but that does not alter my resolves. It has only given them a new impetus. A woman worth wearing is worth pursuing notwithstanding this prior engagement i believe in my ultimate success edmonton was again to all appearance engrossed in the play for the rest of the evening lord oranmore found it impossible to conquer his companion's taciturnity on the morrow the young lord with characteristic frankness we might say daring made known his matrimonial intentions to his stately father the astonishment and wrath of the latter could hardly exceed his son's anticipations an angry discussion ended as arguments between the enraged parents and self-willed sons generally conclude the father threatened to disinherit him as far as possible an entitled estate limited the paternal power the son intimated his willingness to accept this penalty as the price of following his own inclinations. Lord Oranmore looked upon Elma's rejection of his son as one of the coquettish wiles by which she proposed more firmly to ensnare him. At first the indignant nobleman was strongly tempted to call upon her himself. Then he reflected that his chaplain would be a more suitable person." This gracious, aged man, a benign and charity-loving Christian, evinced great reluctance to undertake the mission. In vain he protested that he was not qualified to act in such matters. The excited father would receive no denial. Mr. Edmonton must paint to the young girl the discord and misery which would be brought into the family by her forced admission must obtain from her a promise that she would decline all further communication with Lord Oranmore. Elma was at rehearsal when the unwilling ambassador called at her father's house. The clergyman announced his intention of waiting, and was ushered into the drawing-room. Elma, when she entered, was not aware that the apartment was occupied. She stood directly in front of the venerable man, who had ample time to scan her person before she was conscious of his presence. 
He rose and mentioned his name. What a flood of radiance seemed poured from her face and shone from her eyes, a thousand dewy rays. There was not a trace of the usual cold reserve in her greeting as she seated herself with unsuspicious confidence by his side. Her dignified simplicity and quiet grace made a deep impression upon her guest. This visit no doubt surprises you, Miss Ruthven, and yet some of your friends, I believe, now and then exchange our fireside for yours. Yes, Lord Orinmore has been quite a frequent visitor, and also your, your son, Mr. Edmonton. My son, yes, I believe I have heard him say so, but I was not thinking of him. Not thinking of him? Elma echoed the words internally with painful surprise. What, then, was the object of her father's visit? The dancing, sparkling light that illumined her countenance grew dimmer and dimmer as she mused, and then were wholly extinguished. Her reverend guest noticed that, without comprehending the change, after an embarrassing pause, with much delicacy, he disclosed his errand. To the father of Lord Orinmore, to anyone in the world save the man who sat beside her, Elma would have replied haughtily. But there was a subdued sorrow in her tone which hardly accorded with the language of her reply. His lordship has nothing to fear from me. In regard to Lord Orenmore, I would not unite my fate to his, were his father and all his kin humbly to sue me. I have never even entertained a passing preference for him. I believe you, my dear young lady, there is an air of truth about you which no one could doubt. My report will wholly calm the fears of Lord Orenmore, for I see you are not a woman who could be guilty of trifling. He did you wrong in supposing that your rejection of his son was a coquettish lure to enslave him. Great wrong. I am as proud as his lordship, though perhaps in a different way. Mr. Edmonton gladly dropped the subject. Though his mission was accomplished, he experienced a strong inclination to extend his visit. He introduced other topics, and Elma conversed freely. He found how richly her mind was stored, how nobly her actions were guided, and wondered not at Lord Orenmore's infatuation, or only marveled that the harebrained youth had planted his hitherto fluctuating affections upon so worthy a foundation. At length the clergyman rose to depart. He laid a hand tenderly on the head of the young girl, with a fervent, God bless you, my child. Elma knew not that the face she raised to his beamed with reverential affection. The old man pondered for some time afterwards on that involuntary look. It gave his imagination the rein. When Elma informed her father of Mr. Edmonton's visit, she also communicated to him Lord Orenmore's offer, made on the day previous, and her rejection. Mr. Ruthven would have been indignant at the messenger sent to his child by the imperious nobleman, had he not experienced a proud satisfaction in Elma's decisive refusal. He was flattered that a man of illustrious birth had rivaled for his daughter, 
but he would not have allowed her to enter a noble family that would be to separate her from himself to wholly lose her no he greatly preferred to behold her the wife of an eminent actor above all others of gerald mortimer he told her this in emphatic language elma replied it is my chief happiness to please you my father but let us not talk of marriage that i should marry yet is not an inevitable necessity let us put off all thoughts of it at present i did not mean to urge you or to hurry you my child it would be a joy to have mortimer always with us we are so sad and lonely since your mother went and mortimer's presence is always exciting inspiring i need a son's aid no we won't urge you but the sooner the day comes the better and no doubt so mortimer thinks he has been gone three weeks and now he writes to us praise me that he will be in dublin next monday and will commence an engagement here is a note enclosed for you elma had perhaps been overcome by her interview with miss edmonton for her head swam she grasped the chair for support and tottered rather than walked to the window her father threw it open you are not as strong as you were your mother's death has broken down both of us lean out the air will revive you but you have not taken mortimer's note there should be a restorative in that break the seal at once i will leave you to enjoy the contents uninterrupted though her father left the room elma sat in pensive meditation with the note lying unheeded on her lap at last she glanced over the brief lines and laid them aside with a deep sigh after that she went steadily on her way as before ever hoping that the patient discharge of her daily duties would bring repose to her troubled mind she was passing through a valley of shadows groping in darkness for a season but she never doubted that light shone in the unseen distance to fulfill the task that heaven assigned her was to attract its rays to her obscured pathway if all were ours unearned what need of action if god no problem set for our unfolding where were the joy the power the benefaction of toil and faith and prayer our spirits moulding lord orenmore sought elma again but was denied admission to her presence he appealed to mr ruthven and learned that his daughter was affianced to mortimer the nobleman was not discomfited he could not place his suit on an equality with that of an actor he remained confident that elma might be won a storm delayed the arrival of the steamer on the morning that mortimer was to reach the irish shores it was near midday before the passengers disembarked at kingston and entered the railway carriages that conveyed them to dublin the play for that evening was giuseppus the youthful production of gerald griffin a highly gifted irish novelist who in spite of the allurements of a brilliant literary career grew weary of the world and entered a monastery in cork there he died at the age of thirty-five in the second year of his novitiate giuseppus was one of mortimer's most wonderful delineations 
Rehearsal had been called at a much later hour than ordinary, in anticipation of the tragedian's delay on the channel. He was, however, so regardless of stage observances that his presence at the theatre in the morning was scarcely expected. It was an agreeable surprise to the manager when Mortimer, soon after the rehearsal commenced, walked upon the stage. He was warmly welcomed by the whole company. Perhaps we ought to accept Alma, but she was never demonstrative. Mortimer was a rare instance of a dramatic favorite enthusiastically beloved by players themselves. His manner was wholly free from the overbearing tyranny which tragic heroes are accustomed to assume towards their inferiors. He treated the subordinates of the theater with manly courtesy, an acknowledging remembrance that the feelings of the humblest were entitled to some consideration. It was singular that, while he totally disregarded the clamorous approval of the audience, an unstudied expression of delight falling from the lips of a bearer of banners or a general utility imparted a thrill of pleasure. He often declared that actors were the only judges of acting, the only true critics. The panegyrics which the journals teemed he never read. He scorned the quirks of blazing pens, which, to display the critic's own wisdom, manufactured beauties or shaped faults that are not at random. Mortimer dispensed charities with lavish hand. It was currently reported that the enormous proceeds of his nightly exertions were distributed among the suffering members of the profession. He had freed many from the galling bondage of the stage and established them in more congenial employment. Did space permit, we might relate not a few touching histories of the objects of his bounty. Upon this day in particular, he listened with ready ear to tales of grief and want, and brightened the dim eyes of poverty with the reflected glitter of gold. He was happy, and true happiness yearns to share its joyful throbs with others, to double, treble them by that communion. Mortimer's manner was unusually buoyant during rehearsal. At its conclusion, he accompanied Mr. Ruthven and his daughter to their home. Elma had some needful preparations to make for the evening, and absented herself for a short time. Left alone with Mortimer, Mr. Ruthven, with paternal pride, made known the flattering addresses of Lord Oromore, and Elma's rejection of his hand. Every word struck on Mortimer's ears as the poisonous dart of serpent tongues. He called to mind the last night that he stood upon the stage with Elma, the direction of her eyes when the bouquets were placed in her hands. They had turned to the stage box where Lord Oranmore sat. Heart-searing, crushing, was the conviction that took strong possession of his mind. Elma loved this frivolous, syncophantic young nobleman. Yes, it must be so. Her troth to Mortimer had compelled her to refuse this lordly suitor. She loved him, and Mortimer must yield her up. Lord Oranmore would snatch her from the throne before which he had knelt with the worshipping crowd would strip from her brow its crown, 
from her hand its scepter to discover that with them she had lost the charms of which he was enamoured he would transplant her to a petty conventional sphere of fashionable frivolities where she must play a cold and narrow part upon a stage where there is more acting than in a playhouse how terrible would be her fate mortimer dwelt more upon her probable misery than upon his certain wretchedness for love seeks the felicity of the object beloved rather than its own joy from the heart where it dwells in pristine purity the demon's selfishness is wholly cast out elma had no cause to re-enter the room so timidly she needed not to fear being left alone with her lover nor to dread an outpouring of his passionate devotion mr ruthven considerately withdrew elma bent over her embroidery counting the stitches with as much earnestness as though there were no more interesting occupation in life mortimer watched her for a short time in silence when he spoke it was upon indifferent subjects very soon he abruptly took his leave elma did not see him again until they met at night upon the stage she represented sophronia the athenian maiden betrothed to Giuseppus, who secretly loves fluvius on the very morning of their bridal a doubt of sophronia's affection springs up in the mind of noble Giuseppus. his magnanimity of soul points out but one course he will learn the truth and return to sophronia her freedom if he discover that she is about to place in his an unwilling hand Giuseppus thus addresses her lay your heart before me did as it appears to your own thoughts with all its aspirations you may find that i can act as worthy and as free apart as if i ne'er had stooped so low to win the love that hath at last deceived me for though my heart doth witness i do prize that love beyond the life-blood that flows through it i would not weigh it gainst your happiness the throbbing of one pulse now believe it trust me sophronia you are too noble Giuseppus. no no do not think that sophronia nor let your generous fear to wound a heart too sensitive affect your confidence the rigid schools in which my youth was formed have taught my soul the virtue that consists in mastering all its selfish impulses and could i bring content into your bosom and bid that care that pines your delicate cheek and pales its hue of bloom fit paradise for the revelry of smiles resigns his throne there my heart without a pang could lose ye aside how it burns while i belie it sophronia i have heard you with wonder that forbids my gratitude how have you humbled me o Giuseppus? i would not deceive you yet for you shall find although i cannot practise yet i know what greatness is and can respect it truly i would requite your generosity and what i can i will do not distrust me from any seeming i have plight my promise and it shall be fulfilled Giuseppus, my fears were just then 
Sophronis. Let them be banished now, my noble monitor. When I shall make advantage of your goodness, virtue forswear me. You have waked my heart to duty and to honor. They shall find an earnest votary in it. The audience might have deemed it excellent dissembling, but there was no acting in the deep intensity with which these passages were delivered. The confidence of Giuseppus is restored, and he departs to hasten preparations for his nuptials. Fluvius enters and upbraids Sophronia. Giuseppus unexpectedly returns and hears their converse, Sophronia. Pray you, Fluvius, resolve me this. Fluvius. What is it you ask? Sophronia. Suppose. I do but dream now while I speak of this. But say that it were possible our loves might yet be favored. Fluvius. Ha! Sophronia. Beware, young Roman. I speak this as a dreamer, but suppose Giuseppus you know is worthy and loves you as a friend. Fluvius. Alas, I prove that but ill requited him. Sophronia, I pray you, hear me. Suppose your friend should give me back the promise that I have plighted, oh, most unwillingly, and leave me free to make my own election, wrong or dishonor set apart. Fluvius, I hear ye. Sophronia, how would my freedom move ye? Fluvius, rapturously, as my life restored beneath the lifted axe. Sophronia, we should rejoice then. Fluvius, we should pale the front, the Afric front of night with revel lights and tire her echoes with our laughter. Sophronia, I, and Giuseppus would laugh too. Fluvius, ha, Sophronia, He'd be the loudest raveller among us, I. He should be framed in the story, too, the best, the truest friends, self-sacrificers. Oh, our monuments should be in the memories of every virtuous breast, while Giuseppus might find his own dark tomb and die forgotten. By this dialogue, the noble Athenian learns that his affianced bride weds him from a sense of honor though her affections, in spite of herself, belong to another. Giuseppus suddenly comes forward and confronts the lovers. They are overwhelmed with confusion, but he, with glorious self-abnegation, resigns Sophronia and bestows her upon the chosen of her heart. Mortimer's eyes had sought the stage box as he spoke. Lord Oranmore and Leonard Edmonton sat in their customary seats, the former bending forward with eager interest. The anguish and despair of the tragedian became all puissant and burst forth in a wild strain of improvised eloquence. He called down the most appalling maledictions upon the one for whom he yielded up his heart's best treasure. If sorrow ever crushed her spirit, or tears scalded her furrowless cheeks and ended with a prayer for her whose will he had shipwrecked all his hopes to secure. Actors and audience were alike taken by storm. Never had his magical sway over their emotions been so entire. The theater rose en masse 
with waving hats and handkerchiefs and a whirlwind of acclamations. Elma stood petrified. A calmness as sudden as his violence now sank upon Mortimer's perturbed spirit. He returned to the language of the author, but even through that colder channel his agony found vent. Fluvius and Sophronia depart together, but Giuseppus alone cries out in sorrow's last extremity, Gone, alone, how my head whirls and my limbs shake and totter, as if I had done a crime. I have. I've lied against my heart. What think ye now, wise world, how shows this action in your eyes? My sight is thick and misty, and my ears are filled with sounds of hooting and scorn. What should I fear? I will meet scorn with scorn. It is an inglorious deed that I have done. I will maintain it against the wide world's slight, and the upbraiding of my own racked heart. Oh, there I am conquered. He sinks despondingly upon a rude bench, lifts from his brow the nuptial garland, and drops it at his feet. The remaining acts of the play were unmarked by any extraordinary incident. As Mortimer passed out of the theater, he had to force his way through a dense crowd of men, women, and children assembled around the stage door. Men who cheered, children who clung to his garments, women who held up their infants, begging that he would bestow one look upon the poor creatures just for good luck's sake. His hands were seized and kissed repeatedly, and it was with some difficulty that he could disengage them. When they were free, he drew a handful of silver from his pockets and scattered it among the crowd. As the delighted mob scrambled for the coin, he leaped into his coach. Mortimer had hurried from the theater without bidding good night to Elma or her father. The next day, the tragedian did not appear at rehearsal. This awakened no surprise. He did not call upon Elma. Night arrived, the hour for rising of the curtain, and still Mortimer came not. A messenger was sent to his lodgings. The answer spread consternation throughout the theater. After returning home on the night previous, he had walked out and had not been heard of since. The play was suddenly changed. Elma's mind was full of presageful spheres. That frantic burst of eloquence had disclosed his belief that she loved Lord Oranmore. What consequences might not the fatal error bring forth? She dared not picture them. End of section 19